Happy recording day, Shauna. How are you doing? <laughs> I am so ready for Thanksgiving break or, or at least American Thanksgiving break, let me just say. So I'm ready for the break, but I also realize there's a, a little resistance in me about just the roots of Thanksgiving and just not overlooking that there's a lot of history that may not be all that pleasant to think about, but embracing, embracing the welcome break. Mm, resistance. I think that's a pretty interesting concept. And I wonder if our listeners um, have felt any of that when we've been talking about the various privileges um, that we each experience. So maybe we should dive a little deeper into that. Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right. Join us after the break. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, Lisa, I have a little bit of a sense of where the resistance is coming from. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if others feel the same way when it comes to certain American holidays, at least. But, you know, Thanksgiving is always that one where I'm like, all right, people, you know, pull the history books off of your bookshelf, dust them off and remember what the real reasons are um, for these quote unquote holidays and whether we should be celebrating them. Um, simply observing them? What what should we do with these days, if you will? Should we question them mm. in deeper ways? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling some kind of way about Thanksgiving. Yeah, I mean, it's not a holiday for me, right? Because I didn't grow up here. Um, so I don't have that sentimental attachment mm -hmm. to it, but I certainly yeah. understand where the resistance comes from because for a lot of people, Thanksgiving is a time where families gather, um, give thanks, um, you know, they get to connect after maybe not seeing each other for months. And so then to mm -hmm. learn that the origins of Thanksgiving are not, you know, puppy dogs and flowers, I think can be really challenging and perhaps it's easier um, to bury your head in the sand about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's added, obviously added stress that this Thanksgiving will be quite different in the United States that we're still roaring through a pandemic. Um, the last numbers that I looked at for Wednesday, especially in my state, uh, we had 3000 new cases in the state of Maryland just two days ago. And so, you know, just even thinking through the origins of Thanksgiving, what Thanksgiving means to us, what Thanksgiving means in the middle of a pandemic, um, you know, part of me, the, the petty part of me is wondering, okay, America, are we getting back what we put out? You know, are we, is this pandemic like a cycle of what we imposed on Native Americans in this country? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm just wrestling mm -hmm. with Thanksgiving and how we should, or if we should even celebrate it or simply observe it as this is part of our history. It may not be pleasant, but, you know, how does this get into, once again, power? Because, you know, power is a big undercurrent on mm -hmm. this podcast. We talk mm -hmm. about it, I think, almost every uh, episode. But, you know, how should we think about power in these ways? And especially as we, as a country, are shifting power. You know, we are literally yeah. right now shifting power from a set of hands to another set of hands. And, you know, how should we just pause and, and be reflective during this time period? Mm -hmm. I think that kind of at the, the crux of what you're talking about is this um, kind of understanding for ourselves where our resistance to change comes from. 
um, particularly when we're talking about um, privileged identities, right? So white people with resistance, men with resistance, able-bodied people with resistance, heterosexual folks with resistance. Um, and so the connection between resistance to change and a perceived loss of power, I think is really important. And then I think we should define for listeners what we mean about power, right? Because I think yes, I, yes. I think um, we have two examples. So for me, um, when I say power, I think people conjure this image of a skeletal like character whose fist <laughs> is thrust skyward yeah. during a lightning storm and laughing evilly, like a kind of really explicit manifestation of power as evil. But I don't, mm -hmm. that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about power and the loss of power, it, it doesn't really look like that. And I think, Shauna, you had a good example of, of what it might actually look like. Well, as soon as you brought up your Skeletor example, I thought, yeah, you got a point there. But when I think about power, I think about more like, you know, one of my favorite movies, The Devil Wears Prada and Miranda Priestly. You know, Meryl Streep really played that power role in that it was very few times where she needed to speak. She didn't speak too much. She kept it simple and she really empowered um uh, she was power in the midst of her role just by being present, just by being there. Folks would know based on how she um, walked in the room as to what her position was, what her perspective was. You know, to me, that is how insidious power is when it comes to race, race relations, Thanksgiving, um, holidays, especially American holidays. It's that it's much more understated than we might envision in our minds. Yeah, so she never had to explicitly yell right as an expression of power like skeletal <laughs> you know um right right she, mm -hmm. she really didn't have to do a whole lot at all um to convey that she was the most powerful per person in that room and if you cross her there will be a consequence for it um Absolutely. and so i think about the different ways then that resistance to a power shift can manifest and so i was thinking about this like there's this why can't we all get along right? I just want everyone to get mm -hmm. along and be nice to each other mm -hmm. and be kind, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a maintenance of the status quo, which is a resistance to a power shift. I think there's outright anger. Like, why are you picking on me? Why are you telling me that I didn't earn this? Why are you um, saying these horrible things? Um, there's just kind of like defensiveness, like kind of a, that can manifest like as a yeah unwillingness yeah. to engage or kind of a crossed arms. I'm not even going to give this the time of day. And then there's another way I think yeah. resistance can manifest, which is just, I'm just going to ignore the subject completely. Like you're going to bring it up. I'm going to walk in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to add to your list because you're just reminding me of something that I encounter constantly. And we, we kind of talked about this in the first episode around nice white triathletes in particular, but the first thing that I think of is the dichotomy between peacekeeping versus peacemaking, because sometimes we are very kind to people in a way that doesn't really kick up any dirt. You know, we want to keep peace, meaning that we don't want to engage in these very real ways that cause us to feel uh, some dissension. Um, it, we're feeling uncomfortable. There's some dissonance between what we thought we experienced and what was actually happening in a system that is racist in many ways or sexist or all the ists. And so I think that it's easier to act as if we're keeping the peace. 
um, when actually we're keeping a mess. I mean, we're really keeping, we're holding things in place. We're holding that structure together that we say we want to dismantle. And that I think is problematic in and of itself. So the peacekeeping is, I think, just as detrimental. Um, and it's it's a, still a very powerful form of res resistance. I'm going to mm. keep the peace. Yeah, that's a really great example. Um, because we, I don't think anyone would look at a peacekeeper in the context of maybe right. a group environment, whether that's right. your tri club or your business and say that person is resistant, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's insidious though. That, and that's mm. exactly right. It's that they, they're almost under the radar where, oh, they're such a nice person. Oh, and those are the people that drive me bonkers the most because it's like, you don't want to engage on this topic, which is why you continue smiling to, at me. You continue being kind to me. You continue to gloss over language. You continue to not answer my questions. Um, in my area, I'm from Southern Virginia. You um, consistently bring back the, you know, the Southern charm and draw, mm -hmm. and we're still not getting to the point of the conversation. And to me, that is just as resistant. Um, it's resistant in maybe a more palatable way, but it's still being very clear that they're not interested in engaging in tough topics. Yeah. And I think that this is an important conversation for us to have and for the listeners to understand, like if you're trying to um, push forward an agenda in your endurance sport community and you have um, individuals who are resistant to that um, agenda, the resistance is going to manifest differently. Like if you have a leadership council, for instance, and you need to get something on the agenda, resistance to that progressive um, agenda item could be just not putting it on the agenda, right? The people who have the power to control the agenda just don't add it. So then you're never able to have that conversation uh, at the leadership yeah. level, right? Mm. Um, you know, all the way to this outright anger or this kind of placating niceness, um, peacekeeping. Um, peacekeeping also positions someone as neutral, Oh, which is yeah. interesting, but it's oh, not yeah. neutral, right? Because you're still on the side of the status quo. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're bringing back me bad memories of um, when I was in, and not at my current institution, but a couple of institutions ago where um, I was the, the top ranking person that was responsible for diversity and inclusion. And um, it was claimed to be an alphabetical order, but I realized that the agenda was not an alphabetical order. They usually put uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion topics last, because if we ran out of time, then we wouldn't get to my topics, right? And so that was kind of the nice, nasty form of resistance in that role is, mm. look, we, we want to seem as if we're including these topics and prioritizing these topics and even prioritizing your work, when in fact, what we are saying is, hmm. Let, let's push that further down um, instead of building an agenda that made more sense so that everyone had a rotation of priority. Um, I didn't necessarily need to be first on the agenda, but uh, definitely should not have been consistently last either. I don't think anybody should be consistently last um, in an agenda that's uh, a regular meeting. And so, you know, there are lots of different insidious forms of resistance that happen around us that keep us from actually engaging in the tough topics all the time. And we have to be aware mm -hmm. of how that happens. I mean, it happens to people of color. It happens to women all the time. It happens to LGBT concerns. It, it is in fact a form of resistance. And, and even if we don't want to label it resistance, it's definitely, definitely not a form of embracing the topic. I wouldn't say that mm -hmm. at all. It's, it's the opposite of that, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And I think about um, 
So where, what is the root cause of this resistance, right? We talked about power. We talked about um, resistance to power shifts. Um, but I kind of want to get even like underneath that a little bit in thinking about for folks um, in our culture and US culture and to a large extent, uh, Canadian culture too, there are groups of people that have the most um, social, cultural, economic, political power, right? And that tends to be consolidated uh, in mm -hmm. white, uh, men, white wealthy men, heterosexual men. Um, and so there's this um, underlying belief around ownership, um, and that <clears throat> I am I'm entitled to this thing because I've had it all my life and I earned it. Um, so if you take that away from me, I'm losing and someone else is winning. So it's this conception yes, of this yes. zero sum game, that equity, right, um, is taking something from me because it belongs to me because all I've known is... Um, being able to get what I want and seeing people who look like me reflected in positions of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I love that zero sum game piece because again, it's, you know, this ownership piece, which, you know, of course, if you've lived in an entire society that's been built upon someone's ownership and someone's winning versus someone's losing, then, you know, that's easier for the brain to even uh, understand, you know, winning or losing. It's not as easy to understand the nuances between that and who is chronically losing, who is chronically winning, who's chronically holding spaces together. And so, you know, I think all of that is important when we start thinking about who owns what, you know, who owns, you know, what holidays, who owns what dates, who owns what property, who owns what power, you know, I, when when I look around and I see people that prioritize winning, for example, and I mean, we've obviously seen that mm -hmm. in this year's U.S. election. Uh, part of me and, and maybe, you know, I've started to condition myself in this way. I don't condition myself as a loser. Absolutely not. But I don't condition myself to think that winning is the ultimate priority in every exchange. It's just literally not relevant. Um, and so maybe that comes from, I don't know, a perspective of, um I'm not losing necessarily, but what energy does winning feed into certain people that have always felt that they've always had enough um, for individuals who've always had power, you know, winning almost becomes a language to some people. And, and I don't necessarily always speak that language. And so I, when I hear it, it's like, wait a minute, who cares? So, you know, I, I'll speak very candidly on this, this U.S. election, this presidential election. You know, it's hard for me to hear, regardless, you know, who won? Well, did I win or did I not win? Well, we're in a country where no one's winning because we have how many cases of COVID? We have how many deaths? We have people who are the living mm -hmm. poor. If you're looking at us as a total country, winning is not quite relevant right now because we're trying to make sure people live. And so, you know, I, I just always wonder whether there's an overemphasis on winning um, and people resist if they can't talk about winning. You know, I, I don't even want to engage unless I'm able to talk about winning. Can I be there? And that might be part of the connection to, you know, endurance sport, too, is that many of us are conditioned, you know, what's the best I can do? What's, you know, is it a win or is it a loss? Or if I'm not on the podium, then it's not a win. I don't think in those types of absolutes. And I wonder if we do ourselves a disservice to think about DEI concepts in that way. 
you know, did we win or did we lose? Well, no, did we incrementally move? I mean, I think, you know, being unfazed, you know, going through this phase process, you know, it's not about an absolute win. It's about progress in a particular direction. And it's hard for us to grapple with the uncertainty and sometimes the slowness. <laughs> it takes a while uh, to move along that trajectory, um, especially when dealing with resistance. So it's interesting that you're talking about winning because I think it really aligns well with um, endurance sport um, because I, and resistance, right? So I think about um, Dr. Veronica mm-hmm. Ivey, uh, who's formerly um, known as Rachel McKinnon, Dr. Rachel McKinnon, um, a transgender woman who competes in cycling and the resistance that she experienced when she was doing well in her sport, um, winning at the master's level um, in the national championships, the resistance was, you've taken something away from me, right? Um, that the the space that you're now taking up um, is in direct conflict with my opportunity to win, um, so, you know, I, I, and then I think about that also, you know, with the podium piece that you mentioned, right? Like if we create more spots for women in trail running, in triathlon, in whatever endurance sport, the kind of internalized perception for men is that you're taking away my opportunity to be on the podium and that's my right, you know, and that's where resistance mm. comes from. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing, the the right, you know, I'm, oh, I, I can't even express how much I disagree with the right to do anything in endurance sport as a hobby. <laughs> I mean, for, for me now, the pros, okay, maybe it's something different. But for those of us who um, get to engage in endurance sport, you know, I think it's interesting how to me, again, my perception, all of it is a privilege, you know, the privilege of being able to own a very expensive, a very expensive bike. In fact, I'm ashamed to say I have multiple bikes and they're all pretty doggone expensive. Um, when you talk to someone who's not an endurance athlete, they're like, how much did you pay for that? Um, and so, you know, that <laughs> is a privilege. Uh, the privilege of, uh, you know, when I go look in my closet, my most expensive shoes that I own are running shoes. In fact, not really cute shoes. You know, all these things that I think about that mm-hmm. are all just adding into the fact that all of it is a privilege and not necessary to live, not necessary to function in the world. And, Mm. you know, that we get to do all of this for whatever reasons, whether it's personal, you know, professional, whatever, we get to do this. Um, And, and how, you know, it's resistant to even think that, oh, no, I don't have to do this. You know, someone else who's more adamant is like, oh, I have to do this. I have to do this 11th Ironman. Nah, you technically don't have to do it. You want to do it. You like to do it. Go for it. But it's not a a need. It's a want. Um, And the fact that wants and these privileges are turned into um, this, this is my shiny ball and I'm going to run away with it if Mm -hmm. anyone tries to prevent me from playing with my toy. Um, You know, that to me, that is somewhat sad, actually, that um, as much as I love doing what I do in triathlon, I still realize that there are other things in the world that are um, priorities and essential to living in ways that endurance Mm -hmm. sport is not essential to that. Yeah. And I think there's a dissonance that gets created, I think, for a lot of people. And that's uh, kind of where this resistance originates as well is in that discomfort, right? Like, so I'm seeing inequality, right? So I'm seeing um, 
all of the protests that were happening over the summer around um, George Floyd's murder. I'm seeing the lack of women in a particular sport. I'm seeing the lack of people of color in running, right? As a, 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 as a white person um, or as a man. And, but um, I want to have every opportunity and availability to do well or to excel in this environment. And I am now grappling with, if I want to hold on to those opportunities and that this system gives me those opportunities, right? Because I'm the favored uh, type of person, um, then mm. I can't also um, support racial justice or gender justice, right? Like it's like they're mutually exclusive things. And I think mm. mm-hmm. that's it. It's so it becomes easier to ignore than to engage because the dissonance that what you want and what you see creates it's too overwhelming for people who have never really had to struggle. Mm, well, and that's the key right there is that, you know, if you've never had to struggle through it, then you don't know what it feels like to be uncomfortable for sustained periods of time, having these ongoing conversations. Um, and so, you know, given that, you know, we know just by virtue of endurance sport that resistance makes us stronger. Well, you know, yes, there will be always resistance when it comes to these particular topics. But if we continue to face it, it's it's kind of like putting your bike in, you know, in the easy gear for six months of training. And then you go to Lake Placid and realize that, oh, this is tough. Well, you didn't practice it. You didn't train for it. You don't have the, the muscle mass or the strength to deal with it. And so no wonder you're struggling with it, right? And, and it feels the same way with these topics if we don't begin to um, push against the resistance of having these conversations. You know, w- what would happen? What would just happen if more of us said, oh, no, we need to have this conversation in our tribe club meeting? You know, we need to have this conversation about the one person who um, identified as trans um, who showed up and felt that they weren't included. Well, the resistance would be, oh, we're very inclusive. Look at how many members we have, et cetera, Mm -hmm, et cetera. mm -hmm. Um, Or, oh, well, that's only one person, but we have, you know, 100 members. You know, what if we began to more frequently and more adamantly challenge that type of resistance and and what changes would we see? If that happened as we started to flex our muscle to get used to challenging. And if that means, mm-hmm. that especially, and I would imagine a lot of women listen to this podcast, but if that means that we end up being labeled as the difficult women in the group, then so be it. But what if more of us were difficult, then it would be considered a normal conversation rather than a difficult conversation, because I, I'm still grappling with the language of calling these difficult conversations, because I don't want to call individuals who are non-white difficult. I don't think they are. I don't think I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mm-hmm. conversations are not what we're used to at all. Yeah. And there's also the self-reflection piece, right? So there's the kind of external piece that you just identified about more people pushing the narrative that we have to have these conversations, right? And your uh, attempts to resist that are ultimately futile because we are going to keep forging forward. Yeah, uh, yeah. Then, then the person who is resisting right? Whether it's outright anger, kind of overt resistance, um, or that subtle, I'm not putting that on the agenda resistance, um, really Mm -hmm. needs to Mm -hmm. kind of get in touch with that belly, with that belly feeling, that discomfort that is um, bubbling around that is leading them to resist, right? I think Mm -hmm. you need to go deep. 
in a reflective way and ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling threatened? Right. And Mm. try and kind of logically process through that and recognize that you're not actually being threatened, right? You're not going to look, you're going to, you're not really going to lose anything in the abstract, right? Because the system is rigged in your favor and that's a problem and we Mm. need to fix that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, it reminds me of my, um, my dad's favorite phrase he used to say all the time, you know, we we can curse on this podcast, right? I I think we can, right? It'll show up on the transcript, Lindsay, hopefully. (laughs) Um, But my dad says it all the time, do no harm, but take no shit either. And, you know, I think that's really important that, you know, I don't think any of these conversations are meant to harm, despite the fact that a lot of people, especially white people think, oh, they're trying to hurt my feelings. They're trying to offend me. They're trying to take some something away. In fact, we're not. What we're saying is the second part of that. We're not willing to take the shit of the ongoing disenfranchisement of particular individuals. And we also are not willing to tolerate the uh, willing the what do you say all the time, Lisa? The willful ignorance of mm-hmm. we're just going to stay in the dark, <laughs> and mm-hmm. we're going to stay here because it's comfortable and it's safer to stay in the dark than to come to the light and bring these topics to the light and grapple with them. It's safer being in that uh, that closet, if you will, and and that's not okay. And so, you know, when do we get to this point where we take no shit? And just as uh, sweetly as Miranda Priestley can smile at at someone and say, "Oh, I'm not putting that on the agenda." We can smile back sweetly and say, oh, well, since you left it off the agenda and you have uh, open items, let me add this to the agenda because it's important Mm -hmm. for us to keep that in conversation and um, the disengagement and allowing uh, allowing groups, organizations, individuals to gloss over tough topics. That's exactly how we get what we've always been getting. We Mm -hmm. want something different. Uh, many Mm -hmm. people have said they want something different. So how do we usher that in? I think that's important. Yeah. And also, you know, yeah, recognizing that my white privilege, I experienced that privilege at the expense of folks of color, right? So um, otherwise it wouldn't be a privilege, right? It's a privilege because there's someone who's marginalized by my privilege, right? Like it's um, kind of like an equal and opposite reaction, I suppose. So by resisting um, discussions around white privilege and the ways in which I benefit in endurance sports and in the broader society, I am maintaining that status quo that positions me um, above folks of color, right? Or for for men, positions men above women. So that's actually, even though it may feel passive, it's actually really an active sustaining of this um, status quo that harms Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of people. And like, that's this resistance thing. I get it. I've totally felt resistance when I've been challenged. Like I know what it feels like and it hurts like hell. And, um, but you, you have to engage with it and you have to ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? Right. What is it that I think mm-hmm. that I'm going to lose? And, mm-hmm. you know, I just think that's so critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that level of self-reflection and that level of, um, self-knowledge is so important and it it gets scary as you start to get under those layers to realize you know what am I trying to protect here am I trying to protect my ego am I trying to protect what I have you know what what is it that I'm trying to do because you know the the niceness am, am I trying to protect my entitlement what I think I'm supposed to have what I'm what I think I'm supposed to keep even um you know those are tough questions and and Lisa you as you're saying all that you're you're 
making me think of someone literally holding that mirror up. And, you know, some of those mirrors have different lighting to them. So you might see things that you haven't seen in the past and now you see them quite clearly. And it's not as beautiful of a, a scene as you thought it might have been. Um, in fact, you see those warts and you see that pimple and you see all these things that are not so good looking. And now we have to face them. And so, you know, I, I think it's a ugly examination, but it needs to happen in order to break down some of these, uh, some of the resistance, the mm -hmm. barriers, because I, I think all of these systems, you know, if we want to go from micro level to macro level, all of these macro level systems are built on micro level feelings of entitlement, um, ownership, like you mentioned before, it's built upon the backs of all of that. And what would happen if we kind of treated it as a deck of cards where each and every person examined themselves and decided, I don't want to be a part of that system anymore. And that requires self-examination. I don't want to be part of this ugly system. So it, it kind of reminds me of the folks that say, well, I'm not racist. And I'm like, eh, okay, I, I hear you. Um, however, you're still part of this system and you're choosing not to look at the system. And the more you don't look at the system, uh, the longer the system, this ugly system lasts that you say you don't want to be a part of. You are, in fact, very much a part of it. Um, and, and you can't divorce yourself from being part of the system until you start to do that self-examination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that self-examination is painful. Right. And that's where the defensiveness, that's where the resistance comes from. Um and there was this activity I used to do with um, students where it, it was kind of a, a rope net, like a fishing net almost. And, mm -hmm. you know, that net represented um, a, a certain system. And we would all stand around it and we would hold the edge of the net, right? And then we would have one person step away, right? So one person says, I'm done with this system. I'm going to push back against it. So they let go. But the system still stays in place, right? Because you've got all these other people holding it. So the only way that the system... Um, um, that maintains this privilege and oppression relationship will fall is if everyone lets go of it, right? Everyone who, but oh, actually, wow. but all people, so not wow. just privileged people, right? So mm -hmm. folks who experience marginalization who are also buying into the system. And I think about this with relation to meritocracy. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, that the US in particular really sells this narrative of anyone can make it in the US, the American dream, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you earn what you get. Right. And we all, to some degree, buy into that. And that's also very relevant for endurance sports. So whether you um, are privileged or oppressed based on a particular social identity, I think many of us buy into that. So we hold up that net. And unless we all step back and say, actually, this isn't a meritocracy because the system is stacked in favor of a particular group, depending on the context, then, um, you know, nothing's going to change. But to be able to step back from the net as the person who's experiencing privilege in that context, you have to grapple with the resistance that you feel. And, you know, it's not a zero sum game. Like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's not, I let go and someone else gets more than me, right? It's a reapportioning of power. It's a redistribution right. of power. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to these structures and systems and resistance, Look, we, we got to get very clear on how we we do two different things at the same time. We maybe three. We resist the self-examination. We resist the notion that we're part of the problem. And the, then we re, we resist even engaging in that conversation 
over long periods of time. You know, so for example, I, I always, you know, cackle in my heart every time these organizations call me saying, yeah, we're going to have our annual diversity talk on X, Y, and Z. And when I hear annual diversity and talk in the same sentence, I'm thinking to myself, oh, so you're only okay with making uncomfortable, ma- making people feel uncomfortable one time a year. What about the rest of the year? What about all the time? What about a feedback loop? What about this constant feeling of discomfort, which requires us to grow? It's Lisa, it's literally like you writing me a coaching plan and saying, okay, you're going to do an ultra marathon. And I know you can do it, Shauna, but you only have to go do this one 5k real quick and you'll be ready for the ultra bull honky. We, we both know that that's just ridiculous from an athletic perspective. It's just oh ridiculous. My. But we do that when it comes to diversity work and self-reflection is that if we only sit down to do this once a, once a year, if then, then we don't have the racial stamina, the, you know, the equitable stamina to say, oh, let's talk about these sustained conversations and topics over time. We don't even have the, the, the muscle mass to do it intellectually or personally or emotionally. We don't even have the capability of doing it because we're not in the practice of doing it regularly. And so, you know, when I get called in, you know, for this, whatever once a year thing is, if I choose to take it, I'm usually assuming, oh, I guess this is going to be a keynote then because I know you're not equipped to have a conversation if you only do it once a year. Is this going to be a series? Is this going to be, you know, a sustained dialogue? Is there going to be a minimum number of conversations we're going to have around this topic? Because it's unrealistic to expect people to um, sit up to or live up to a time of resistance for a couple of hours out of the entire year. And they're supposed to make any measurable progress? No way. No way. I I just can't believe Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think it also encourages people to retreat back into their marginalized identity, right? So white women Mm -hmm. retreat into their womanhood because that's where they experience marginalization as a means to not have to face the ways in which whiteness benefits them. Um, You know, I mean, that's damaging, I think, because it, it, um, papers over or kind of glosses over the ways in which those two identities intersect and the ways in which white women have historically kind of positioned themselves with white men as a means to have power because they recognize that positioning themselves with women of all racial identities won't lead them to have power. Again, power, thinking about power, not in this really explicit way, right? Um, and we, I think we saw that really, if we think back to the um, bit of a kind of odd history lesson, I suppose, because I'm probably going to mess half of this up, but thinking about the <laughs> right the right to vote for women, right? So white women um, advocated for the right to vote and had um, previously some white women had been um, connected to and supportive of racial justice. But when it came to acquiring the right to vote in the United Kingdom, in the United States, white women kind of... Um, disconnected themselves from the issue of race and sided with whiteness, right? So mm, when when yeah, women yeah. got the right to vote, it really was just white women, you know, and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris said this in um, her uh, celebration speech last weekend, and it's been mentioned a few times, right, that it was just a long time until women of color experienced the right to vote, even though on paper, all women had the right to vote. So... I, don't, I guess I, I, that's just a thought that popped into my head, but I do think about that, that these one-time um, sessions 
initiate resistance for a short period of time, but push people back into their marginalized identity and say, well, I don't experience privilege because I experience marginalization in this way. Well, and, and that's the easy way out, right? The, the easy way out is to let me just own one identity at a time. And I've fought the good fight of womanhood. So now I'm not going to grapple with my privilege of whiteness, for example, and, and I'm not going to do it at the same time. And so it's almost as if we can't think about two things at once. And I know we're bright enough to do most of us are endurance sport, uh, endurance athletes and endurance sports, which means that we're often doing more than one thing at a time. We are running those miles while thinking about that report that we need to tend to. And we're riding the bike while thinking about, oh goodness, I got to figure out, you know, how I'm going to get the kids to school on time. We're constantly multitasking. And so I just think it's a cop out for people to say that I can only think about one identity at a time. Um, We hold all of it together. And so I guess my, so what of this conversation is how do we get people to continue to lean into the resistance and get comfortable with that headwind when it comes to these conversations, because that's, that's part of the struggle. You know, that's part of the struggle that none of this is really meant to be easy or comfortable. All of it is difficult. And all of it is consistently difficult when we choose to engage. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do we continue to, you know, put our shoulder into this work um, to advance it forward? And I think, you know, some of it is purposefully putting ourselves in situations that um, are, outside of our comfort zone on a regular basis in ways that allow us Mm -hmm. to learn, to grow, to make mistakes and get back up. I I think part of it is purposefully doing that purposefully Mm -hmm. on, on a consistent, uh, regular basis. Yeah. And calling out resistance when you see it, right. And reframing resistance as not necessarily an angry outburst, um, that it could be a really (laughs) subtle and seemingly benign behavior. So Okay. I think that's a great place to end it. Um, lots to chew on. I think that I will leave this conversation feeling like I have more to process and think about related to this. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Lisa, you know, we always have to leave with homework. So I, I do think uh, we should step away thinking about how can we continue to lean into mm-hmm. our own resistance around particular topics that we don't necessarily maybe enjoy discussing or thinking through or reflecting on, but we need to give it some attention. So I think um, over the last few episodes, I've shared with folks that, you know, my resistant area probably is ableism and ableist language and really pushing myself to think about that particular topic uh, or or Mm -hmm. area of privilege in my life on a regular basis. And so I'm going to continue pushing uh, my resistance in that way and examining why do I feel so weird when I need to really examine ableism um, and ableist language? I think I'm going to continue to do that for my homework. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I'm going to continue my work around whiteness. I certainly um, am not there yet. And there isn't really a there, right? Um, and I definitely still feel those pangs of defensiveness in certain situations. And I just, I need to do um, continued work in that area. Um, and particularly with the intersection of my white womanhood, right? Not retreating into my womanhood mm-hmm. um, to er- mm-hmm. erase the effects of my whiteness. So I will continue mm-hmm. that journey um, and engage Absolutely. with my resistance and name it and mm-hmm. dig underneath it to figure out why it's happening. 
Oh, well, you know, it's, it always seems to be easier to call out other folks resistance than it is to call out our own resistance. So now we're going to start calling ourselves out more often mm-hmm. than not. Yep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sounds good. I love it. I love it. Well, look, I, I love how Miranda Priestley dresses, but um, I, I don't want to wield that type of power at any point in my life. So I'm going to um, work to simply <laughs> enjoy her on the big screen, but leave it there. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan, Shona. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.